0: So we're back. Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I'm really excited, selfishly, because I have Kathy Pearl, the head of conversation design outreach at Google. Kathy has a deep background in user experience. She was even a software engineer at NASA. And I'm super excited to get her take on the emerging space of conversation design as someone who works in that space as well. So Kathy, welcome. Thank you. So I just wanted to start by take us through how you got into conversation design and how you figured out that that was even a career that you could
1: have. Conversation design was definitely not a thing when I was young or even when I was in college. I was very interested in computers when I was young and we got our first family computer and I learned how to program. And I was always really interested in trying to get the computer to talk back to me. And in college, I majored in cognitive science, which I didn't know it at the time, but that turned out to be a great background for a voice user interface designer because fundamentally cognitive science is about studying how humans work had psychology, neuroscience, linguistics, artificial intelligence, and all those things really play into being a good conversation designer. In graduate school, I majored in computer science, and it, I took my first HCI class, human-computer interaction, which really opened my eyes to the idea that rather than just focusing on like, what cool technology can we build, and then, well, if the person has to read a 50-page manual to use it, well, so be it. It was more about how can we create technologies that already work in a way that somebody might naturally expect. So something like voice user interfaces fits in really well with that because, you know, we already all know how to talk. And then my first job in the industry was at a place called Nuance Communications, where they were the first company to create IBRs, phone systems, with a system where you could call the computer and get stock quotes. And I spent... Mm, about eight years there, really learning the fundamentals of how to create these conversational systems. But I, I really grew kind of disillusioned with the technology because so often we were told by our clients, you know, human operators are very expensive. So your, your role is to keep people away from, from speaking to our operators. And I was thinking of really leaving the, the space entirely, but I was really re-energized when smart speakers came out. And I realized there was this very fundamentally different use case in how we could interact with this technology. And I've gotten excited about it again.
0: Smart speakers being Amazon Alexa. That was the first one, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One thing that I think is really interesting is that when I think about the phone-based ones, you know, we think about those awful airline things that you call into and, you know, you just find yourself saying operator a hundred times until someone finally picks up the phone or I always just press zero until someone actually talks to me because I feel like they're so frustrating to work with.
1: Yeah. And that was absolutely true for a lot of them. And that being said, there were a few that I worked on that I still feel really proud of. Um, My favorite was one in the San Francisco Bay Area called 511, where you could call 511 to get traffic information and public transit information. And this came out before smartphones. So if you were on the road, you had no way of looking at traffic and things like that. So it was offering something that you couldn't do in another way. It was more of a value Mm -hmm. add. And and that's something that still gets millions of calls and um, I'm very proud of. Right. So then
0: things like Amazon Alexa came around and that was sort of reinvigorated your interest in the space and what we could do with it? Exactly. Okay. So then... What is conversation design and sort of what does that industry even really look like? I think I'm familiar with the side of making bots and making conversation flows in that manner. But when you think about conversation design in general, sort of what are the principles of that?
1: Conversation design, I mean, the the key component is really teaching computers how to communicate like humans and, and not the other way around. And communication, by the way, we often talk about voice user interfaces, but it includes typing. It even includes potentially swiping and tapping because all those things are part of this back and forth turn taking you might be having with a computer. And conversation design is the design practice for this. Just like at Google, we have material design building visual technology. And just, I like to think about when websites first came out and anyone could create a GeoCity website and have flashing construction signs and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Nowadays, if you're a company and you want to have a great website, you're going to hire a professional web designer. And just like that, in this relatively new space of building conversation designs, people really need to invest in hiring a conversation designer or training someone to have that skill set because it really is a skill. And what's happening right now is that Everyone's very excited about this technology and, and kind of going crazy with building things. But a lot of times, you just throw a couple developers at it, try and get something out the door, and people don't use it or it's frustrating. And often, this is because of um, you know best practices with design were not followed, and it becomes a, a frustrating or unsatisfying experience for the user. Right. Because I think
0: it sounds like one of those things that because, like you mentioned earlier, we all know how to talk, or most people do. You would think that you would know, you would be able if you sat down and you said to yourself, okay, I need to design this conversation. You might not even think about it from a design perspective. You might just say, oh, I need to figure out what my bot's going to say from our side. And then, of course, you should be able to do that because you're a human and you talk to other humans all the time. So how hard could it
1: be? Exactly, and there's this great myth that's the, that's always been the case with designing these these conversational experiences where you think, well you know I, I know how to conversation, so how hard can it be but just the other day I was I was playing a game on my Google home um, an adventure game and it's a pretty popular one. And it asked me a yes, no question. And I said, sure. And it didn't understand me. Right. And it surprises me that he, we're still encountering things like that. And again, I think it's because of this fundamental issue where design, as in many cases, is often brushed past and like, oh, we'll fix the words later, which conversation design isn't just about, you know, sprinkling in some words. It's about the whole flow and construction and how do we build it so that people know what to say, for example, when you think about, you were talking about human communication, we think a lot about how humans communicate when we build these things. We think about things like Grice's maxims. So Paul Grice came up with this cooperative principle. This was in the 70s. This was about human conversations. But mm-hmm. typically in general, when I'm having a conversation with somebody, I'm trying to be cooperative, that is. I'm trying to understand what they're saying, and I'm trying to speak in a way that makes sense to them. He has maxims like the maximum of quantity, meaning don't say too much, don't say too little. But the thing about human conversation is that... We have so many nuances that the computer doesn't have. For example, we have body language, eye gaze, pauses. And in the current technology, we have a much narrower channel of signal from the person who's speaking. Think about something as simple as pauses. So, when we're having a conversation, the pause between our turns is super short. It's like the blink of an eye, like 200 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. If you pause, if I ask you a question and you pause for longer than a second, that's a signal to me. So for example, if I said, Hey, can you give me a ride tomorrow? And more than a second ticks by, which isn't that much time, I'm like, hmm, (laughs) yeah, I don't think they want to give me a ride. So I'll return again. I'll say, ah, you're probably missing. (laughs) That's the kind of signal that we can't necessarily capture with today's current technology. So therefore, we have to be even more careful about how we guide it. For Mm -hmm. example, every time the computer's turn finishes, we need to have a call to action by either giving um, an instruction to the user or a question. So saying, you know, tell me your favorite color or what's your favorite color? And then it's really clear to the user, oh, it's my turn to talk. And one of the things I see people do all the time on on voice uh, user interfaces is they'll, they'll ask a question and then give some examples. So they might say, what's your favorite color? You can say yellow, red, or green. And that messes people up because they start to answer the question and then the computer keeps talking and then they stop talking and it's like this this messy back and forth. So again, these are the kinds of things that a conversation designer thinks about and those are going to be issues that they have to worry about when creating these designs.
0: Right. And I think one of the things that I've come across that I was really surprised by when I first sort of started seeing this industry was how frustrated customers and just people in general can be when their expectations aren't properly set at the start of one of these mm-hmm. conversations, mm-hmm. right? So if you don't know that you're talking to a bot or you or you expect that the whatever it is that you're talking to works in a certain way and it doesn't, especially if there's no visual component, I'm sure it's probably maddening to, to try to communicate.
1: Yeah, that is one of the That's one of the most challenging things as well. So, So as you said, one of the things that's really important, whether you're doing like a text bot or a voice interface, is to set the stage, set the expectations. Because if you're building an action or a chatbot or something, it will only be able to do a limited set of things. And that's okay, as long as you're able to communicate that to the user. So if you start with some open ended prompt, like, you know, I'm the such and such bot, how can I help you? (laughs) You know, you're in for a world of hurt, because people have no idea what they can and and can't say. So you have to really set the stage and, and kind of, you know, outline, these are the types of things that can help you with. And another thing I always tell people is that just like one of the most important things for people when we're talking to one another is to feel understood and Mm -hmm. acknowledged. And so if you say, let's say you built a a hotel chat bot for booking hotel rooms and a lot of people are saying, well, I want to book a car. If you just say, well, I don't understand. That's like super frustrating to people, but you could say, oh, sorry, I can't book cars yet. You know, I can book hotels. People like that a lot better than just being like, "I don't understand, I don't understand. Um, right. You really want to feel like that you're at least being understood, even if you can't have your problem solved right at that moment.
0: Right. And I've also seen people get frustrated when they don't know how to get out of it. So they get kind of stuck in a bot flow or someone will try to build a flow and they'll put in loops because they just want the customer to kind of get stuck in there whatever they want the bot to do or qualify or whatever it does. And then the customer is like, but I, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else, but I can't, I can't find that edge of the bot where it tells me how to get out of it.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I was at the gas station yesterday. This was not a chatbot, but I I accidentally hit the wrong button and it wanted me to enter an amount and there was no way I could cancel or get out of it. And I was so frustrated. And just like you said, with chatbots, the same thing. You get into this place and you don't let the user extract themselves gracefully to, to move on with things.
0: Right. So another question I want to ask is, I think this probably applies to lots of these sort of new shiny technologies that are coming out and everyone kind of like AI. They want to use AI. They want to put it on their website that they have it how do you think people should use conversation design and and where they should put conversations versus where it's not helpful?
1: You bring up a really good point, I think right now, in that AI is this buzzword and everybody thinks you have to have AI to have a successful uh, conversational system, which, you know, it's certainly something to strive for. And if we want to have truly generalized chat situations of course, you'll need that, but I think some people forget that you can have very effective, important conversational systems without a lot of AI and the way you do that is you just decide on on your your goals very carefully um, and you you pick a particular domain or a particular task and you just make sure that that particular task is done really well and one way we we like to advise people is if you're thinking about should I build a conversational system or a voice system for what I'm trying to do, one thing to think about is Is this something people naturally have conversations about already? Like, do I call a concierge or a bank clerk? Or, you know, could I have a conversation about it with another person? That's probably a good fit. Um, Thinking about efficiency, if I do this through voice, is it actually faster than, say, picking up my phone and and tapping on things? If it's not faster, why would people want to do it? Another thing I think people often forget about is the complexities surrounding getting to the use case. By that, I mean, let's say you want to, help them with banking or with their car or something like that, but they have to log in somehow. You have to spend time thinking about how can we make that a seamless experience for the user? Because if if the logging in portion is so complicated, it doesn't matter how great your, your action or whatever is, because it'll be too hard for people to get to. So a lot of different aspects uh, like that go into it. Right. So then,
0: okay, we've figured out the right place to put this conversation or use conversations in a product And this is something we were kind of talking about before. How do you know what makes a good conversation? How do you sort of measure that? I think when we first started talking about it, you know, one way is to think, well, you reached the end, right? Like that's a good conversation because you got to the end of the conversation. But I think the more I learn about it, the more nuanced I think this, this is. And so what's your take
1: on what the characteristics of a good conversation are? I think that's a great question that's not been 100% decided, but there are certainly things we can think about specifically when looking at successes and failures of conversational systems. One, of course, is, you know, did the user achieve their intended goal. Mm -hmm. And the goal is, you know, such a variety of things. It could be a one-off, like turn on the light, play a song. It could be a more complex back and forth about looking for a hotel room uh, in New Orleans or something. It could even be chit chat. That could be a goal. Like I want to have a short little pleasant conversation with the system. Mm -hmm. So truly understanding the goal and not being too vague about the goals is very important. But of course, in addition, did they achieve their goal? <laughs> was the process pleasant and efficient? So maybe I, I booked my hotel, but boy, I was you know pulling my hair out. Right. That's, that's not great. Another thing I want to caution people is not to be fooled by number of turns. Back in the phone system world, we often looked at like, what was the amount of time someone spent in the system? But number of turns does not necessarily reflect a good or a bad experience. A lot of people, I think, are focused on, we have to keep it as short as possible. And that's the best. And that's not necessarily true. Sometimes breaking down a complicated question into two questions is actually a better experience. And what we found is that as long as people feel like they're getting somewhere towards their goal and that the questions are not irrelevant or repetitive, mm-hmm. people are happy to have longer conversations. And so again, look, just looking at number of turns is, is not necessarily the right way to go. But in terms of like really specific metrics, two things we absolutely look at are uh, no matches and no input. So no matches are when we get unexpected user responses, so something we couldn't handle. And it's really important to see, well, how many of those are you having and where in the conversation mm-hmm. are those occurring? It could be because your grammar coverage isn't good enough. Like the example I gave earlier when I said, sure, instead of yes, that's a very <laughs> obvious one, but it could right. be you know, just even thinking about how many different ways people can set an alarm. I might say, you know, set a timer for eight o'clock tomorrow morning. I didn't even say alarm, right? But you should be able to understand that. So really spending time looking at all those no matches and figuring out, is it grammar coverage? Is the prompt confusing? Is the flow confusing? All that kind of things. And similarly, no inputs, which is when someone doesn't say anything. If you have a particular place where there's a lot of no inputs, you're probably asking maybe a confusing question, like maybe you're asking them about information they don't have easy access to or something like that. So it's a good place to look at. There's also the dropout funnel. Like let's say you're building a conversational experience, like a symptom checker, you expect to be 15 questions and people are dropping out often at like question eight or nine. Obviously, you got to dig in there and figure out what's going on. Why, why is there a dropout rate? And then retention, although again, I caution people, retention is retention relevant to your particular thing? It could be something that someone only does once and that was a success, or are you building something where you expect people to come back? And so that could be another thing to look at.
0: Yeah, I think there's really interesting parallels between what you're mentioning and the way that people have started to approach onboarding flows and activation flows into products. Because I think there was that Mm. original hypothesis that was the faster, the shorter, the better. But then similar to the conversation, if you break it down into smaller pieces and you show progress, I've seen those examples where you actually get more people through your flow because you've made it simple. They sort of get invested and they move further down that flow.
1: Mm, Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So then what does the future look like as as someone who's in the center of conversation and conversation design? Obviously, there's lots of new interfaces coming out. There's the Google Home, there's Amazon Alexa. So where are we going? What's what's going to be the next big thing that comes out in conversations?
1: Yeah, of course, this is just my personal speculation. But um, I I just read this really great report that came out from Answer Lab. They did a diary study uh, for people who have smart speakers. And one of the things they mentioned is that users, as they have these digital assistants over time, they want more fun and engaging conversations. So I think we started out very utilitarian, like set a timer and play music. That's all we Mm -hmm. do. And more and more things have been added. But I think as time goes on, people are going to be looking to have longer and more engaging conversations about a variety of topics. And look at something like Ice, which is the very popular chatbot in China, and some people have 20-minute conversations with that thing. So I think that speaks to a need that we want to have a little bit more fun and engaging experiences. Another thing I think what happen is conversations in more places. So a lot of people have smart speakers sitting in their kitchen or in their home, but I think there'll be more places where maybe you're at the grocery store or um, at the mall and you're talking to a kiosk or the shelf to ask questions and things like that. So there'll be more places available to you to, to have these conversations. But as part of that, one of the technologies that I'm really interested in right now is this idea of silent speech, which is where you can speak, but no sound is coming out of your mouth. So you're kind of making the movements without without actually vocalizing. Oh, interesting. There's, yeah, there's some uh, places like MIT Media Lab and NASA are working on on this technology. And basically it uses um, sensors along your jawbone to, to get the bone conduction to understand what you're saying. And it's still in early stages, but I think this will be critical for voice to become ubiquitous because a lot of us don't want to be talking out loud to our computers. Right. We're out and about right. but, but not even just, I mean, sometimes cause we feel silly. Sometimes it's cause it's private information, like my health information, but it's also just practical. If I'm in the office in a shared space and we're all talking to our computers, that's like really annoying. So yeah. um, as I- I'm just imagining like you, the example you brought up of the grocery
0: aisle, just sort of, late at night walking down an aisle sort of talking to a shelf and you
1: know having some sort of like existential crisis (laughs) exactly so um i think technologies like that will will come about that make it more natural people will be more likely to use uh speech in public when things like that happen and one more thing i'll say is i think there'll be more personalization so for example right now if i asked to play the song last christmas I want it to know that I want the Wham version and not the Carly Rae Jepsen version. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And it should know a few things, you know, with my permission, it should know a few things about me like that that will just make it a little even more frictionless and more enjoyable.
0: Right. Awesome. Well, this has been super interesting. I really appreciate you coming on and taking some time. But before I let you go, I have a couple more questions. Just curious about over your career, you know, you've gone from being a software engineer to being in design. And now you're sort of focused on this conversational design outreach. What are some lessons that you learned sort of over the arc of your career and and where you are right now that you think might be helpful to people who are just getting started in product? Oh gosh, that is a big question. Um... Yeah. (laughs) I try to steal the secrets from everyone I talk to (laughs) to see what I can get for myself.
1: You know, I think for me, um, gosh, I'm not sure if this is what you're asking, but at a personal level, for me, I I kind of hit this crisis point in my career where I had had taken some time off when my son was born and I was in my 40s and I felt that I was kind of done with my interesting career. And I thought, you know, well, you know, no one's going to, I hadn't worked full time in like seven years. um, Mm -hmm. And I just thought no one's going to hire me again. I'm not going to have an interesting career again. And I was so wrong, (laughs) (laughs) but I really felt like I was in that pit, you know, where I I couldn't see out of it. And I think maybe being able to recognize that nowadays, I think people's careers often go through many changes. You know, I started out as a software engineer, and and I kind of after a few years realized that I was really more interested, I love programming, but I was more interested in the design side of things and realizing that that could be a career. And I I think what's happened for me is that a lot of times I haven't even realized what is going to be out there in the future in terms of interesting things to do and sort of just sort of keeping an open mind and trying stuff that maybe trying some things that really scared me. Or I thought, you know, like writing my book, I just, when that was happening, um, I just thought, I don't, you know, I can't do that. That's like I'm working full time at a startup and I'm a parent and there's no way I I can do that. Um, But I said yes anyway. Right. And it was hard for sure, but I got through it. And again, everyone's circumstances are different and there's reasons you can't always say yes to things, but for me, um, saying yes to a bunch of stuff that kind of scared me ended up really being beneficial and opening doors that I didn't even know were, were there and, and resulted for me in, in some some really nice um, nice opportunities in my career.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I love that advice. I think I had a conversation with someone who's probably six months out of undergrad today. And he was asking, you know, how do I set better goals for my career? How do I know where I should be in the next however many years? Mm-hmm. And I think what I'm hearing over and over from people is that it's really hard to plan that out. And what you have to do is be open and like you're saying, say yes and, and sort of just be open to new opportunities and take risks, especially when they scare you, because that's usually a good sign that it's going to challenge you and help you grow and learn.
1: Yeah. And on top of that, I would say, and again, it totally, I know different people have different circumstances and not everyone can, can change jobs and things like that. But right. I think sometimes people, and this is, you're in a particular role or something and you think this is where I, this is where I have to be, you know, I there's, uh, this is, it's like safe or whatever. And, and even mm-hmm. maybe happy, I, I don't, you know, see another opportunity. And so sometimes being willing to maybe take the leap and, and try a different job, which may or may not be better than the job you have, but being a, willing to maybe try something because nothing is permanent these days. Right. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to experience different things that kind of help you come to realize what are the things you enjoy most about a job. And, and if, you, if you have the opportunity to be choosy, it's nice. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you, Kathy. I really appreciate you coming on this episode. Everyone who's listening, please give Kathy a shout out in the reviews, obviously five stars only. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me.